I never thought that I would come into a church in Nashville and just be glad that I was able to make it in. Uh, usually on Saturday afternoons, I end up having to get on an airplane to go to another church somewhere else, like in Dallas or in Tech, or that is in Texas, isn't it? <laughs> but in Dallas or in California or, or Florida or someplace else. Um, but about four weeks ago, our youngest daughter, Mary, who had already made plans to go to Lipscomb, we're a Lipscomb family. We've got three kids that have graduated from Lipscomb. Bonnie and I are both graduates. We thought Mary was going to go to Lipscomb. About four weeks ago, she got an offer from Oklahoma Christian, a, a, a scholarship that just was stunning to us. Long story short, made a fast decision, and she decided to go to Oklahoma Christian. So we all loaded up the family on Thursday, like the Beverly Hillbillies, and we went out to, to, to Oklahoma and uh, got out there. And yesterday afternoon, I had to buy a plane ticket to fly back to Nashville, left the family out there so I could be here in time. So it is an unusual feeling to have to fly to get home to do a seminar here in Nashville, but I'm glad to be here. Um, you know, ever since uh, we, we started talking about doing the seminar, David and several of us began talking about it. Stan Verbal, I think, really kind of got this whole ball rolling. I have been looking so forward to being out here at Mount Juliet. You guys are, are growing. You're doing some really cool things. The church is, seems just to, to be exploding. You're in a, you're in a great community. And uh, to, to me, that's a really neat thing. Last night, Michael came and met me here. We were getting everything set up. And I asked Michael the question that I always ask before I come to a church because you need to understand I go to a lot of different types of churches of Christ and 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 I've noticed something I've noticed that churches everywhere I go have got their own dress code I mean every congregation has its own dress code and I have learned the hard way that it's best for me to check and figure out what the dress code is first so last night Michael and, and uh, uh, Kevin and some of us were getting things set up and I said what is the dress code here at Mount Juliet what should I wear on Sunday morning and Michael said, well, it doesn't make too much difference, but you could probably, probably wear a coat and tie. That's what most people wear. I said, fine. But like I, like I said, I have learned the hard way that churches have their own preferences, their own dress codes. I mean, I've gone to some congregations that would prefer to see me show up in a three-piece black suit with a white shirt and a black tie, just to be truthful. And I've gone to other churches, and they're just proud if I get in in a pair of matching socks. And I, I've, I've been to all kinds of congregations. <laughs> But I have learned, like I said, that I need to find out about this because I've learned through this process that I'm not the only one who has hang-ups. We all have hang-ups. You have hang-ups. We've all got our share of hang-ups. You might have heard about the school teacher that sent the kids home from school and told them to come back the next day and bring something that reminded them of Christmas. A little Jewish boy came in with a menorah. A little Baptist girl came in with a manger scene little girl from the Church of Christ came in with a casserole. <laughs> We've all got our hang-ups, don't we? Well, today and tonight and tomorrow night, we're going to be talking a little bit about breaking hang-ups. We're going to be talking a little bit about changing the paradigm that we come from. And I, I, I guess maybe a good stepping-off point here this morning. And by the way, let me just tell you, this morning's message is not going to be about money. We'll begin to talk about that in Sunday school in a few minutes. And no, I don't present myself as a preacher. I'm just an old businessman who, who has the blessing of sharing stewardship teaching with people around the country. As we're going to begin with our No Debt, No Sweat seminar here in a few minutes. I, I do get the blessing and the privilege of preaching on a lot of Sundays. And I've kind of grown to figure if God could speak through a donkey in the Old Testament, 
maybe he can speak through me occasionally on Sunday morning, so, so it's, it's fun to get to preach. But as I started to say, I've, I've, I guess maybe we need to sort of step off here with one great point that I'll build everything else around. And that great truth is this. Folks, things are frequently not the way they appear to be. They, they just aren't. You might have heard about little Jimmy. I was telling this story before it became a song, but it still makes a pretty good point. Jimmy was about four years old when his dad bought him his first baseball and bat. And Jimmy was excited. He went running around the back of the house. He started to practice. A day or so later, dad comes home from work one afternoon. Jimmy comes charging around and says, Daddy, come here. You've got to see what I can do. So dad takes his jacket off and lays down his briefcase and walks around to the back of the house. Jimmy says, watch, Daddy, watch. Grabs the ball, grabs the bat, throws the ball up in the air, takes a power swing, and completely misses the ball. The ball hits the ground. And dad's a little concerned, but grabs the bat, throws the ball up in the air, takes another swing, and this time he gets a little better cut, but again, he misses the ball, and the ball hits the ground. And now dad is concerned, but before he can say anything again, Jimmy looks at him and says, Daddy, I've got one more strike. Grabs the ball, grabs the bat, throws the ball up in the air, takes another swing. And just by maybe a, a quarter of an inch, the little guy misses the ball again. And the ball hits the ground. And now Dad doesn't even know what to say. But before he can even weave the words of a sentence together, Jimmy looks at him and says, Daddy, that proves it. I'm going to be a major league pitcher. <laughs> Folks, Things are frequently not the way they appear to be. And the hard, cold, sad, depressing, and spiritually debilitating truth is this. There are some of us in this room this morning for whom things are not the way they appear to be either. Some of us have been Christians for a year, maybe five years, maybe ten maybe 30 or 40 or even 50 years. But for some of us in this room this morning, this whole thing about walking with Jesus, the peace that passes understanding that Paul talked about, this joy in Christ has never really linked up in our lives. We look at other Christians and we see them, they seem to have everything together. But we know that down in our heart of hearts, things are just not right. So what some of us have done over the years is we have begun to develop what some people refer to, at least one writer has referred to, as a sin management lifestyle. It's not that we're going to commit the biggies. We're not going to go out here and commit murder. We're not going to rob the 7-Eleven store. But somewhere along the way, we just sort of gave up. And we decided, okay, I'm not going to worry too much about the pride, about the greed, the worry, the anger, the divisive spirit, the malice in my heart. I'm not going to worry too much about those things. And our walk with Jesus has gotten colder and more and more distant. I can tell you that in the years that I've been around, this has been a struggle for me. And I can tell you there were a lot of years when I used to would look out here at my branches and I did not see very much fruit. I didn't see a lot of the fruit that the Spirit talks about. The brother just a minute read, uh, ago, he read this, but let's tell you what, let's take another look at this if you don't mind. Y'all got your Bibles? Hold your Bibles up if you got them. Hold them up. Don't you hold up those songbooks. I can tell the difference. Okay. <laughs> i tell you what, let's go back over here to Galatians 5 one more time real fast and take a quick look at this again because this is where Paul tells Christians what it's going to be like when we get it right with God. 
And for those of us who like checklists, this is one of them. And listen, if you're a new Christian, this is a passage that you need to memorize. If you've been a Christian for a number of years, you probably are pretty familiar with this passage. This is where Paul talks about what it's going to be like for us when we get walking with God the way we should. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. <clears throat> now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now I'll just tell you truthfully, there were a lot of years that I read that passage and I set my Bible aside and I walked away so cold and empty inside that I couldn't even put it into words. Like I said, I didn't have a lot of that love or that joy or that peace. You wanted to see how little peace and patience I had? I'll tell you, all you had to do was pull in front of me in traffic. You would have found out. Stan, I will never forget the Sunday morning I was driving to church at Antioch and some woman came swinging out in front of me in traffic and I like to hit this woman and I lost it. The, the, my face went red. The things on the side of my neck bulged out. I started to blow my horn at that woman and would you believe that that sweet, dear sister in front of me was driving straight to the Antioch church? I followed her all the way there. At least I was a big enough hypocrite to park on the other side of the building. But I've been there and I've done that and I know what it feels like not to have a lot of fruit out here. And I'll tell you what I started to do, and I'm not proud of this at all, but what I started to do as the years passed, I started to strap on plastic fruit. And truthfully, I don't know who I was trying to fool. Maybe I was trying to fool other Christians. Maybe I was trying to fool myself. I mean, maybe I was trying to fool God. I don't know. But I can tell you that as those years were passing, my walk with Jesus was getting colder and more and more distant. Listen, I think I know, and I'm not going to confess for anybody else in here, but I think I know when the devil's happiest 20 minutes of the week are. Again, I'm not confessing for anybody but the Diggs family, okay? But I will tell you, I think the devil's happiest 20 minutes of the week are those 20 minutes that we and our family, at least, very frequently, that we and our family have spent driving to church on Sunday morning. I'm not proud of this. I'm just telling you the truth. My wife, Bonnie, by the way, is the very best friend I've ever had. I fell in love with that girl in 1972 on February the 10th when I took her out on our first date and I told her then I wanted to marry her. She's been the best friend I've ever had since and I love her with all my heart and Bonnie is without question the most godly person that I've ever known in my life. But honestly, Bonnie and I have probably had some of our worst tiffs in the car, driving to church on Sunday morning that we've ever had in our lives. I have probably been rougher and tougher on my children sitting in the back seat of the car than at almost any other time of the week. And then what happens? You pull your car into the church lot and phew, those hermetically sealed doors open up, right? And you step out and you start to walk across the church parking lot and some good brother or sister walks up to me and says, hey, Steve-O, how are you doing this morning? And I commence to tell the first lie of the day. And what do I do? I say, I'm doing, oh, I'm doing what? Fine. And I look at this other poor sister or brother, and I say to them, how are, you, how are you doing? And she feels like she's got to play that same game of spiritual one-upsmanship with me. And she looks at me, and she says, oh, Steve, I'm doing great, too. And we're on our way into the building telling our Sunday morning lies. Now, again, I know that nobody else in here can identify with that. But we've been there, and I know what it feels like not to have that fruit, not to have that joy. 
Listen, what I'd like to do this morning is this. I'd like to share with you three things that God is in the process, and I emphasize the word process. I'm nowhere close to where I want to be on any of these things. But God is in the process of sharing and teaching me. And I can tell you that to the degree that I've internalized and accepted and begun to apply these three things, my walk with Jesus has become sweeter and sweeter. First thing that God has begun to open my eyes to is the realization that theology, theology is not nearly as complicated as I used to try to make it. Now again, I'm not against theology, but theology is not as complicated as I want to try to make it. Matter of fact, I would tell you this, many of us in this room, we probably learned about all of the theology that we really needed to know by the time we were probably about four years old. Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. Little ones, folks, everybody in here, we're all little ones. To him belong. I'm weak. Thank God he's strong. Brothers and sisters, that's true theology. You know, when they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what does it take to get right with God? That was his chance. That was his shot. He could have talked about temple worship. He could have talked about sacrificial animals. He could have rolled the tape ahead 2,000 years. He could have talked to us about, <clears throat> he, could have, goodness, he could have talked to us about Wednesday night attendance. He could have talked to us about the one-year Bible. Those are all great things. But when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was asked, what does it take to get right with God? He essentially said, are you serious? Do you really want me to tell you? Okay, I'll tell you. It's going to take two things. Number one, you've got to learn to love God from the core out with everything that you've got. And number two, and folks, this is honestly the harder one of the two for me. You've got to learn to love other folk like you do yourself. Jesus essentially said, you get those two things down and the rest of the rest of the stuff's going to dovetail together pretty well. Second thing that God is beginning to help me see is that this book is not what I grew up thinking that it was. See, I grew up thinking that this was my own personal proof text. And I, my idea of Bible study was to go through here and find passages that proved what I already believed so I could go out and in some cases talk to somebody else who loved God as much as I did and bludgeon them with this. And if I didn't come back with some of their blood on my Bible, I didn't figure I'd done my job right, because after all, it's a sword. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting for one moment that there are not doctrines within this book that we need to pay attention to for the purposes of all of eternity. But as the years have passed, I've begun to realize that this book really is saying the same thing over and over again. And it doesn't make a lot of difference where I go. I mean, I can go to the Pentateuch. I can go to the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. I can go to the Gospels. We can go to the Pauline writings in the New Testament. We can go to the, Apoc or the, the book of Revelation. You can go to any place you want to go in these 66 books. All 66 of these books are telling me the same thing. They're telling me, Steve, you have blown it. You're, you're in a mess. And you're hopeless. Unless you choose to hold on to Jesus and trust him, and he will fix it. You see, I've begun to realize that this is far less 
of a rule book than I had always thought, but it's far more of a love letter than I had ever dreamed. And I'll tell you the really cool thing about this, it's caused me to get to where I want to study the Word more. I still don't study the Bible as much as I wish I did, but these days I find that I'm excited. I, I'm studying Ezekiel right now. I, I, I look forward to getting into the Word because sometimes I'll be reading something that I may have read 50 times before, and boom, God will hope, help me see something that I've never seen before here. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So number one, I'm learning that theology is simple. Jesus loves me. I don't know why, but he does. And by the way, let me, let me say this again. I want to say that in a different way because we Christians hear that phrase so much that sometimes it goes in one ear and it pops out the other and the gray matter in the middle doesn't even slow it down. Back to that first point, Jesus loves us. Let me say it this way. This is harder to hear for some of us. Jesus likes you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if last night you were sitting up watching something on TV that you know God has nothing to do with. I don't care if you've been unkind to your family. I don't care if you've done something on a date this week that you know is sinful. Now, you know I care, but my point is this. The bottom line is God likes you. He cares for you. Like somebody else has said, if Jesus had a refrigerator up in heaven, he would have every one of our pictures stuck on the front. That's the God we serve. So number one, Jesus loves me. I don't know why, but I'm thankful. Number two, I'm beginning to realize that God has sent me a love letter. Third thing that God is opening my eyes to, and honestly, this is the one that I'm doing the very worst at. I'm having a hard time with this one. But I'm beginning to realize that God is not as interested in religion as I have been. Now, wait a minute, Steve. Are you saying Christianity is not a religion? No, I'm not saying that. Christianity is a religion. Matter of fact, it's the only perfect religion there is. But brothers and sisters, religion for religion's sake has never done the deal. I mean, think back. Who did Jesus spend his toughest moments with? Weren't they the, the religious leaders of his day? Religion is what almost brought a half a dozen airplanes down over the Atlantic almost a year ago. Religion brought us Baghdad. Folks, religion for religion's sake does not fix the problem. What Jesus is more interested in us, in having in us, is probably not religion. It's probably a relation. And you think about it, God is God. And God has the right to set the rules. Amen? 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 God has the right to set the rules? God could have come to us and he could have said, listen, I am... I am the king of the universe. He could have come and said, I'm the boss of this cosmos. But God did not do that. God came to humanity where we were. And he said, I am your father and you're my children. Folks, we hear that all the time. and We don't understand what's going on. That was revolutionary. That was the stumbling block for the Jews. That was the ridicule of the Greek pagans. God, deity, how can he be father to us? But that is what God said he was. And, and, and listen, I cannot not teach what this word does, teaches. And folks, if I offend anybody, forgive me. But let me just tell you something. There are at least two places, arguably three, but there are at least two places. Check me out on this. Romans 8, Galatians 4, where we're told that when our walk with God matures, it will become a walk of Abba, Father. Anybody in here know what the word Abba means? And I'm not talking about the rock and roll band. 
Does anybody know what the word Abba means coming out of the Aramaic into the English? What's the best translation we've got? Yes, Daddy. That's the best translation we've got. Now listen carefully, please listen. If in your family's economy, the word Daddy is a flip or disrespectful way to talk about your father, that is not what I'm discussing here. Folks, I am the Daddy in my family. If my children willfully disobey me, there will be repercussions. But I'm the dad. And back in about 1980, when we first started hatching kids, I started to get a little bit different perspective on this. I started to notice that some of those Old Testament passages that used to scare me to death, I'm thinking about one right now over in Psalms 33, 18, I believe, where the Bible says the eyes of God are on his people. Those passages used to scare me because I pictured a God up in heaven who was watching me, waiting for me to blow it so he could, you know, kind of, Drop kick me out of heaven. That's what I pictured. I'm not proud to tell you, but that's the truth. But when we started having babies, I noticed something really curious. I noticed that my eyes were on my babies. As a matter of fact, I was literally down here on my hands and my knees, crawling around on the floor, playing with my babies. And I guess I was doing it for a couple reasons. One, I, was, I didn't want them to hurt themselves. I was watching them so they wouldn't put their fingers in the sockets. But the other reason I was watching them, I promise you, it had nothing to do with me wanting to throw them out of my family. I was watching my babies because I thought they were cool. I thought they were neat. I loved my kids. And I wanted to spend time with my babies. Now, I'm 55 years old. These days, I'm combing my hair with my towel. But you know something? I'm just dumb enough to believe that maybe my God is the same way. He really does like me. He sent me a love letter, and he wants a relationship with me. Now, if all that stuff is true, somebody needs to ask the question, why don't we get this? And brothers and sisters, I think it boils down to one word. I think it's the word grace. I don't think we get grace. You say, oh, I get grace. I want grace. Are you sure? I mean, we live in a world that does not have grace. I mean, we live in a world where you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, you pay as you go, you earn your keep. And the outside world, that's fine. But folks, when we're talking about God's kingdom, that is wrong. There are Christian people who honestly, if you walk up to them and say, hey, are you saved? Are you going to go to heaven? They'll say something like, oh, I sure hope so. I'm trying real hard. Thinking that that is a pious, godly response. I'm telling you, folks, that is the most anti-God, anti-Christian heretical response that a Christian can give. How, how dare me say, oh, I'm trying real hard to earn God's forgiveness and his love? You see, this is the problem that humanity has always had. Even in Paul's day, Paul struggled with this. He was constantly having to teach Christians about grace because they didn't hear it. Listen, I want to read a passage to you here. If you want to, please turn on over to it. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Before we read it, though, let me just tell you why I'm reading this particular passage. Because as you all know, Paul wrote a lot about grace. We could go to a lot of spots in the New Testament on this. The reason I'm reading this, let me just tell you a little bit about the background here. In about the year 55 AD, Paul went on what we refer to as his second missionary journey. He was up north of the Mediterranean Sea. He came across this city of about two or 300,000 people. The name of the city was Ephesus. Ephesus was a great city. A lot of education, a lot of art, 
a lot of commerce, but also it was a very, very pagan city. It was the headquarters for temple worship to the idol Diana or, or, or Artemis. This was, this was a fertility rite. There were pagan temples all over that city. And folks, what went on in those pagan temples is not stuff that we need to be talking about here in mixed company. This was horrendous stuff. Yet Paul came into this city. He fell in love with these people. He started teaching them about Jesus. And people started coming to Christ. Now, over the next 10 years or so, Paul sent emissaries. He sent Aquila and Priscilla. He sent Timothy, probably Apollos. He sent several people to work with this church. I'm personally convinced that Paul, for some reason, had a special love for the Christians in Ephesus. In about 65 AD, give or take a year, Paul writes this letter that we call Ephesians to the church. And he wants to set some things straight. Now, we could speculate forever as to why he wrote it. Won't get into that. He did write this letter to the church. And I think that the heart, the core, the nucleus, the DNA of this letter is right here in chapter 2. Now, Steve, why are we reading this passage about grace from Ephesians again? Let me tell you. According to the historians, by the end of that first century, some 30 or 40 years after Paul had written this, a curious thing had begun to happen in the city of Ephesus. All over the city, those idol temples had begun to shut their doors. And you say, wonder why? The reason was because so many people were coming to Jesus. So I want to know, Paul, what did you teach those people? What did you say that was so, so revolutionary? Take a look at this. Over here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses um, 8, 9, and 10. This is where Paul tells Christians that they're saved by grace. And again, Paul knows that people does, don't hear this. So he's going to have to say it to them five times. Watch this. Number one, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Number two, it is not of yourselves. Number three, it is a gift of God. Number four, not as a result of works. And why is that, Paul? So that no one can boast. Whoa, wait a minute, Paul. Are you telling me that I'm saved? Yes, Steve, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Well, what do I have to do to get this, Paul? Steve, it is not of yourself. Well, surely I've got to do No, Steve, it is a gift of God. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully here. There is no such animal as a gift that you work for. The very nanosecond that we start to work to earn something, it ceases to be a gift. By definition, you cannot have both. And Paul here says... It's a gift. Or what do I need to do? Steve, not as a result of your works. Why? So that you can't brag. You see, if it had anything to do with boasting, David here could stand on a chair a little bit closer to God than I am. David, you could say, Steve, I've baptized and buried and, and, and ministered to a lot more people than you have. And because of my works, I'm closer to God. But you can't do that, can you, brother? See, David and I are at eye level. And again, I don't care what you've done. We are all at our level before God. Well, Steve, do you not believe in works? Yeah, I believe in works. Paul believes in works. And by the way, let me just say this. There is no difference between what Paul taught about works and what James taught about works. Right here in verse 10, Paul goes right on. He talks about works. He says, for we are his, actually he says the sixth time we're saved by Jesus. For we are his, Jesus' workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now here, folks, is where we Christians get our theology wrong sometimes. That little word for is translated correctly. Some of your translations say unto. That's okay too. But that little word comes from a Greek preposition. It's a little short three-letter word, epsilon iota sigma, a little short preposition that means exactly what it says. 
for or unto. We are created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works. But here's what some of us read it as though it said. We are created in Christ Jesus because of our good works. Now, do you see where that leaves us? When we start reading it that way, that puts us on a wheel, kind of like a gerbil, you know, it's running all the time, trying to do enough good stuff to stay saved. Always working, always stressed, never sensing that God's peace is in our lives. And it's a little wonder we don't have a lot to share with folks. And brothers and sisters, there are some people among this, in this room right now, probably, who are not Christians at all. You've been sitting on a pew for years, waiting to get some things straightened up in your life. If you could straighten them up, you wouldn't need Jesus. That's the point of all this. And if you believe that lie, that one comes from the pit, that you're going to straighten some things up and then become a Christian, you believe that lie, you will eventually die and you will go to hell in your sins. We have got to accept Christ on his terms. Accept his forgiveness through baptism and put him on. Listen, I could literally take you to the spot on the floor where in 1972, for the first time, I learned a little bit about grace. This was at David Lipscomb College. You need to know that I did not come to David Lipscomb to get a Christian education. I had grown up over in Oak Ridge. I, I, in, in high school, I was a disc jockey. And I wanted to move to Nashville to get a radio show and a record deal. I did not care a whole lot about Christian education. Matter of fact, I was at best a very nominal Christian in those days. But I had come to Lipscomb in 1970. I told you a few minutes ago that I met Bonnie in 1972. When it came time to decide for our new classes the next semester or whatever it was, I looked over Bonnie's list of stuff. I wanted to be in a class with Bonnie. I wanted to hold hands with Bonnie. Well, I looked through all the stuff that she was taking. Bonnie's a lot smarter than I am. And I couldn't take those classes. But there was this one Bible course on the book of Romans that Bonnie was taking under Dr. Harvey Floyd. Now, little did I know who Dr. Harvey Floyd was. And for those of you who don't know, he was our upper-level Greek and New Testament theologian in those days. Dr. Floyd is one of the great heroes of the faith, as far as I'm concerned. But I thought, well, nuts, I'll just take this course with Bonnie so I can be in the class. Well, Steve, do you even know what the book of Romans is about? What, Rome? <laughs> I don't know. Steve, maybe you do need to take this course. So I commenced to take this class with Bonnie. Now, if memory serves, I think it was the last class of the day. We got out at about 2 o'clock. And I had a radio show. I did afternoon drive here in Nashville, so I was on the air from 3 until 6 or something. And what I would normally do is as quick as class was over, I would skedaddle downtown to get, get ready to do the show. And it would have been just like me to be sitting in Dr. Floyd's class, sitting there scribbling down show notes. I will never forget the day that I looked up just in time to see Dr. Floyd looking down at me. And he said, Mr. Diggs, today we are discussing Romans chapter 8. We're talking about grace. Would you like to stand up in front of the entire class and tell everybody what grace is? Well, no. I mean, I didn't know. Only grace I'd ever met growing up was the lady with the big hair on the third row at church. I, mean, I did not know what grace was. So I said, no, I don't think so, Dr. Floyd. He said, well, Steve, let me help you out. True or false? Grace is when a Christian has done everything he can to work his way to heaven. He's done all kinds of good deeds, but since nobody is perfect, grace is when God comes down the last little bit and pops on into heaven. Hey, where I'd come from, that sounded pretty good. And I said, yes, sir, Dr. Floyd, that's grace. He said, oh, Mr. Diggs, you could not be more wrong. He said, go over there to the corner of the room and get that pole. There was a, um, there was a pole leaned up in the corner of the room. I got this one out last night. Looked kind of like this one. 
He said, Steve, what I want you to do, he said, I want you to balance this pole on your hand. And I did. There's nothing to it. As easy as it can be, you can do it with one finger. He said, now, Steve, look down at your hand for a minute. And the minute I did, it fell over. He said, do that again. And I did, no problem. He said, look at your hand. And the second I did, it fell over again. Then Dr. Floyd said this. He said, Steve, that, my boy, is grace. Grace only happens when you're looking 100% totally to the top, completely to Jesus. He said, when you do that, it will balance forever and ever and eternity. But he said, Steve, when you start to look to yourself, it'll fall over every single time. Now, honestly, I, kept, I couldn't tell you much else that I learned at Lipscomb in those four years. But that's a class that I will never forget. If you have a need this morning, there is a very real Jesus who loves you very much and would very much like to forgive your sins. If you're already a Christian, you need somebody to pray with you. Well, there are a lot of folks around here that would love to pray. Whatever your need is, please feel free to come and stand as Andrew leads us in a song. Brother.